Hi, this is Lindsay. This is Philip. This is Chelsea. This is Katie. And this is Hanging Hanging with with Microbies. All right, so guys, today we're going to talk about the cosmetic industry. How many cosmetic products do you think you put on this morning to get ready? Does shower gel count as a cosmetic? Because I put it on, but then washed it off. Mm. Shower gels, toothpaste, hairspray, <laughs> soap. That would require hair. <laughs> Two. Lotions. Three. I did brush my teeth today, so it's three. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Six products. Chelsea? I'm going to say based on those definitions with my face wash, face lotion, all of the makeup I put on, because I put on so much, probably about 15 to 20. Wow. So the average woman puts on about 16 cosmetic products a day, and men put on about five to seven products. So, yeah. Hmm. I'm shooting average. All your shadows, eyeliners, mascara, deodorant, perfumes... If you took a shower, all that <laughs> stuff is all part of the cosmetic industry. And the cosmetic industry is actually quite a very big business. In 2020, it's predicted that it's going to be a $650 billion industry. What do you guys know about the history of cosmetics? Like how it got started, how long cosmetics has been around? Didn't they use like charcoal and fruit? to like for blush and charcoal for like eyeliner i'm, I'm reaching here <laughs> oh, yeah exactly yeah. yeah i know that like egyptians did wear eyeliner that's the only history that i know is that that it goes back at least as far as egypt and cleopatra and that mm-hmm. but other than that i don't know anything yeah um civilizations have used cosmetics for um for many many centuries for religious rituals to enhance beauty and to promote uh good health and cosmetics throughout history can be indicative of like a civilization's practical concerns if it's part of their social class or just conventions of of beauty so you're right Um, Cosmetics kind of started around 10,000 BC. Um, It was an integral part of the Egyptian hygiene. And both men and women actually um, used cosmetics through scented oils and ointments to mask their body odor or uh, soften their skins. I have a quick question for you. Yes, Chelsea. Is war paint considered or like like camouflaging your skin? Would that be considered cosmetics back whenever... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Braveheart is going through my head right now. <laughs> this is the direction you wanted this to go in. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, like, that's what I... As soon as you started talking about, like, civilizations and things, I'm like, oh, people used to use, you know, to try and either conceal themselves or they would mask up to make themselves look more fierce whenever they would go into battle. Um, so, so was it first used for beautification or for that to make themselves look more scary yeah Hmm. well tell us personally (laughs) i I would think that that that's a whole different area i mean yes it's paint that's being put on your face so which is probably the same paint that someone would put on their face to to like you know uh signify their social class or you know or just or try to look more you know beautiful yeah, I don't, I don't know the direct answer if this would be considered, if war paint would be considered. That wasn't on your list? <laughs> yeah, that wasn't on my list. So yeah, so the Egyptians put oils and creams 
on their bodies to protect against the hot sun. And they use many different types of uh, ingredients for uh, perfumes. Can you guys name any? Frankincense. That is one of them. Myrrh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, well, besides myrrh and frankincense, they also use thyme, marjoram, chamomile, lavender. Margarine. Marjoram. It's a spice. Okay. What about rosemary? That always smells good. Rosemary, peppermint, cedar, rose, even aloe, olive oil, sesame oil, and almond oil were all used to make different perfumes. Did and you creams. say olive oil? Olive oil, yes. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I thought the idea of most cosmetics are to remove the oils from the skin or the cleansers. But well, you... olive oil is a good moisturizer and it's also a good antioxidant. So for people who have rosacea or inflammation on their faces, it's good to put um, olive oil on. So going back to Katie's um, earlier uh, point about Egyptian women wearing uh, charcoal, as eyeliner, um, women also actually uh, began applying um, Galena Mesdemet, which is a, um, a paste made of copper and lead ore, as well as malachite, which is another type of green paste of copper minerals. And they put this on their faces for color and definition. They also used coal, not the charcoal that we use to grill and barbecue, but this coal was a combination of burnt almonds, oxidized copper, different colored copper ores, lead, ash, and ochre. And when they created this paste, this gave um, the almond-shaped eye look. Besides the Egyptians, uh, the Greeks actually also used a lot of different types of makeup. And around 1000 BC, Grecians used chalk, or again, lead face powder, to whiten their complexion. And they also made uh, a crude lipstick out of ochre clays that were uh, laced with red iron. So the Greeks were kind of like the first ones to make lipstick. Huh. Interesting. We've also got the Romans. Romans would actually put barley flour and butter on their acne or their pimples and for fingernail polish sheep fat and blood they would paint that on their fingers to have red fingernails red nails have always been in men and women i'm well hey whatever you your boat <laughs> you went in rome oh god <laughs> I know they also used to use deadly nightshade, which is a plant. I think it's called belladonna, which is beautiful woman. And they would put droplets of it in their eyes because it would dilate the pupils. Oh, wow. To make them look more attractive. It's also deadly poisonous. But So can anyone uh, guess when the first manufacturing plant was open for making cosmetics? 1312. The Industrial Revolution. I have no clue. Chelsea's pretty close. Between the 1400s and 1500s, um, that's when Italy and France became the centers of cosmetic manufacturing in Europe. Cosmetics were still really only um, accessed by the aristocracy at this time. It's still pretty expensive to, to own makeup. Now, instead of putting lead in the cosmetics, people started putting arsenic in their face powder. Oh. Instead. So, oh, great. so we just made a trade. Mm -hmm. um, and around this time, this is when France started to get into the uh, perfume making industry 
And a lot of fragrances that were coming out of France at this time were amalgams of uh, naturally occurring ingredients. So I have a question for you. You know, with the egg whites and, you know, whitening the skin, is that similar to the olive oil when it, with how it helps rosacea? Well, I, I do know okay. that egg, egg whites, you know, people put that on their face even today. It's, um, it's like a firming mask, right? And on your hair, too. And you can put it on your hair and stuff. I don't, I'm assuming lead does not have the same effect. How, <laughs> it's do, probably you, something about- how do you know this thing? How does everyone know this? I, I don't, don't know. know. I've never heard anyone putting egg whites on their face. Pinterest or their makeup hair. tutorials. Who's? Pinterest. <laughs> Pinterest. Okay. It's a big I've piece of, of technology that's been out for a while. <laughs> huh. But women, I mean, yeah, for my grandmothers, you know, you put egg whites in their hair, you know, well before we had the um, the products you know, to do that, or to, today, like for, you know, softening your hair. Egg whites and honey are really popular for your hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you put honey on your face? That's another good anti-inflammatory. Yeah. I'm learning lots of tips today to that I'm going <laughs> to take and use in the future. Dry shampoo, a little bit of baby powder and cocoa dust if you want a darker color. Why is a cosmetics industry worth $650 billion when you could just go into your pantry and... Marketing. Get all these things. Marketing. No, because I mean, because it, it's yeah. Every time you have to make it up fresh, you know, and just time. People just you know they don't have time, and um, you know sometimes the product that you're buying from the uh, from the shop might actually might be better than you know just using a natural product. It depends what else is in it. So. And we all have different skin types too, so yeah. we have different like needs for things. So moving forward, let's jump to the 1800s. Instead of lead or arsenic being put in your uh, powders, now zinc oxide has replaced has replaced the powders because they they finally figured out that lead is toxic to be putting on the on the face. So they also, besides zinc oxide, they also used um, ceruse, uh, which was another type of mixture, but this was discovered to be toxic. And it actually, it caused facial tremors, muscle paralysis, and in some cases, death. That's yeah. intense. <laughs> that and the nightshade, like Philip was saying. Yeah. Like, but you'd look good when you die. But you'd look good, yeah. True, good point. Yeah. Once this started be, being discovered that uh, actually what you're putting on your face could be toxic, Queen Victoria publicly declared makeup to be improper and that it was considered vulgar and only acceptable to be used by actors. Um, so after Queen Victoria, you know, made that big hubbub about it's only proper for actors to wear makeup, I mean, was it after she died that the common folk? Us common folk decided to uh, poison our faces again? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> Strike two, Lindsay. It's just the whole popularity of makeup um, and cosmetics. So... When the 1900s started, there was actually a lot of pressure. Now we're in the Edwardian society, and there was a lot of pressure for middle-aged women to appear youthful while acting as hostesses. And this is where then the use of cosmetics is now being increased in um, beauty salons, and the salons begin to rise in popularity. But because women of this time, they don't want to publicly admit that they need assistance to achieve their youthful appearances, they would enter salons through the back door. With World War I, this brought increased employment among American women, and there was a gain 
in disposable income because of this, which led to a boom in cosmetic sales. So now we're going to enter, we're entering the roaring 20s. Um, with cosmetics and this brought an increase in you know the dark eye look the red lipstick the red nail polish and um, women wanting to use a lot of suntan to to look tanner and this is also the era where cosmetics and fragrances were manufactured and mass marketed in america for the first time so after the 30s there was a lot of laws that were passed regarding the safety around cosmetics and the manufacturing of cosmetics so, Lindsay, what did, who is the um, governing body that actually regulates um, cosmetics and what goes into them? So, cosmetics industry is very interesting in that it doesn't really have a governing body. Okay. Um, in 1938, cosmetics was actually excluded from the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 because they were not considered a serious public concern. However, there were some incidences with eyeliners, uh, so Congress actually then passed a Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which expanded the FDA's authority to then regulate cosmetics. So the FDA's authority to regulate cosmetics is, is actually really loose. Cosmetics, they're applied to the skin and absorbed through the skin, but they don't require stringent regulation right. of what goes into them. Exactly. Yikes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different chemicals go into cosmetics and you know they have these chemical names on the label um but is there any way to like backtrack what I mean other than just googling what these things are cuz I mean Google's only been around for 25 years how did people figure out like what 2 carboxomethyl phenylalanine I mean random Yeah, I mean it's up to the consumer to to do their own due diligence, but also a lot of um, a lot of ingredients aren't even listed on a label. Um, you know, if you look at your makeup, it probably only has on it if it contains SPF. It probably only has the ingredient that they used for the SPF, and that's about it. Um, even for example, with perfumes, they don't have to list all of the ingredients that were used in the perfume. They could just say fragrance, and because there's probably some IP around it too, uh, right? So. They yeah, and so they can just write that in. And there's actually over I read there's over like 3,100 different types of fragrances that can be all formulated and mixed together, and the the manufacturer just has to put fragrance on the label. So in the uh, 2000s, this is when the industry kind of started seeing an increase challenges in uh, product safety concerns. The consumers started to get more aware of animal testing and what was actually going into their uh, into their cosmetics. The EU actually has quite a few laws that regulate what can go into um, into cosmetics. There's over a thousand ingredients that are banned from from the EU for going into cosmetics. Where in the U.S. we only have um, eleven ingredients. So the EU is more stringent around the cosmetic industry than the U.S. government? Yes. Okay. Yep. In 2016, this seems to be like the last act that the FDA has done so far in cosmetics, um, where they drafted a guidance on um, using lead impurities in um, lip products, which is consistent with um, international policies that the EU has. So up until then, lead was still used? 
lead, other types of metals at very low concentrations could be in your makeup and or in your yeah, cosmetic. Well, that's uh, interesting and concerning. So yeah, I mean, this this whole industry is very it's very interesting what goes into the the stuff that we put on our faces every every day. So is this where chromatography fits into the cosmetics testing? So there's many different types of chromatographic methods for testing cosmetics. I bet they use HPLC, GC, mass spec, everything. If we're counting perfumes and testing for components that might be bad for our skin. Yep, yeah, exactly. TLC? I think I read somewhere there are still some tests that are done. Not ever Old since school. Third Eye passed away. Don't really? go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> Listen to the rivers and uh, But anyway. <laughs> no idea what you're doing right Have now. you guys heard of... Um, it's a band, TLC. Oh, okay. Have you guys heard of MEKC? Micellar Electrokinetic Capillary Chromatography? Well, that one, that's used for testing antioxidants and creams and different gels and oils. Um, but yeah, HPLC um, is used, GC is used, um, as well as UHPLC. <laughs> One particular use that I'm going to talk about for using chromatography in testing co cosmetics is during the managing of batch production. Um, and I'm going to use the example of hyaluronic acid. What can you guys tell me about this, this hyaluronic acid? It's Have a small seen? molecule. Does it's it? acidic. Yes. And it's put in a lot of skin creams for hydration. Yeah, exactly. And it makes skin creams a lot more expensive, which is what I know. But hyaluronic acid is considered the fountain of use of today. Uh, because of its properties to be able to retain water, it kind of plumps up your face and helps reduce the fine lines and wrinkles that we see. But it's actually really hard to manufacture hyaluronic acid. A lot of companies are extracting hyaluronic acid from the cartilage of a rooster comb. So the little red comb that's on the top of a rooster's head. I didn't know that was a called a comb, but yep. okay. It's called a comb. Yeah. I didn't know that they were extracting hyaluronic acid from it, but they are. That's where, that's where they can get the most um, of this ingredient from. How did they know that? Fortunately, besides that, scientists have figured out another way to mass produce um, hyaluronic acid. Thank God. Yes. Using a streptococcal type of bacteria um, for bacterial fermentation. And there's a lot of science behind this, actually, because manufacturers are really interested in being able to maximize the production of making the hyaluronic acid, because obviously they want this production to be a lot cheaper than um, extracting it from the, the rooster comb. So there's a lot of researchers and manufacturers that are continually studying the methods of practice for optimizing. To do this, uh, they need a carbon source and a nitrogen source. So researchers have studied different types of sugars, such as beets, sugarcane molasses, soy molasses, sucrose, glucose, lactose, fructose, all of these for sources of carbon to see which one would produce the um, highest amount of hyaluronic acid, as well as looking at yeast extract, corn, steep liquor, soy and whey protein as sources of nitrogen for the um, for the bacteria to produce to undergo the fermentation process 
So they are they using the bacteria as a way of just producing this as a side product of growth? Is that correct? Yes, yeah. Okay. They're using the bacteria, yeah, as a way. Yeah, the bacteria are making it, but they're right. making it as a, a, like, not just like a byproduct, not right. a... Yeah. exactly, yeah. So, so they haven't had to, gen- have they had to genetically engineer the... No, no, okay. it's coming from, yeah, a type of, a type of bacteria. Um, yeah, so they, so their main interest is to grow up as much of this bacteria as they can and to have it have the most efficient fermentation process so that way it produces um, the largest amount of hyaluronic acid. So um, lactic acid is also a byproduct during this um, and they know that with the increase of lactic acid this actually decreases the production of the hyaluronic acid. So what are they going to use to monitor when lactic acid has reached a certain level in their product? A carbohydrate and organic acid analysis column? Like exactly, Katie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Aminex. An Aminex column is what they're going to use. It's interesting because as you're talking through these applications, you're mentioning sugar sources and acid sources. So it seems like, you know, I knew for hyaluronic acid, a lot of people are doing reverse phase in size exclusion. But it seems like there's even more front end analysis to be done on those carbohydrate or uh, fermentation sources where the acid's even coming from. So it's kind of like a multiple steps in the... I don't know, process of manufacturing these Mm -hmm. items require different checkpoints for chromatography even. Right, yeah, because once they've figured, you know, once they've um, determined that they can stop the production or stop the fermentation process, now they need to go ahead and purify the hyaluronic acid from the, what is that called? The broth. The broth, yeah. This makes me think a lot about, you know, the beer brewing podcast yeah Good. lactic acid <laughs> yeah it just it ties into that a lot which i wouldn't have thought prior to you know learning this that it actually cosmetics and beer i mean i use both of them but didn't know that they had ties to chromatography if your hyaluronic acid production goes wrong and you have too much lactic acid just brew beer instead yeah yeah <laughs> a good backup yeah. plan a nice sour So another usage for chromatography in the cosmetic industry is monitoring uh, preservatives that are put into into the um, different products. Um, Are they, sorry, are they preservatives for the cosmetic or preservatives for the skin? For the the skin, no, (laughs) that's a good question. (laughs) No, they're preservatives that are used to help reduce microbial growth in the cosmetic. So yeah, it helps keep the shelf life of the cosmetic a lot longer. But um, parabens, um, they actually have shown that um, these cause a lot of allergies in consumers. Um, so researchers and manufacturers um, are also monitoring the level of parabens that goes into cosmetics to help reduce exposure because not only in cosmetics are parabens, but they're also in our food and our pharmaceuticals. So I've heard a lot of discussions amongst my friends about this new clean beauty movement. What's all that about? So I'm glad that you brought that up because the clean beauty movement has been gaining a lot of traction recently um, as consumers demand more transparency 
um, as to what is actually going into their cosmetic product. And um, chromatography, you know, is really at the front lines to help um, detect and inform the consumer of what ag- exactly goes into their um, face powder or their um, eyeshadows. Recently, um, actually here in the state of California, um, a couple of our senators have um, written a bipartisan bill called the Personal Care Product Safety Act. And if this gets passed, this would modernize how the FDA regulates personal care products, um, and meaning that this would require companies to make sure that their products are safe before they even market them. And this would also give the FDA more tools to, um, to help protect the, pro- uh, the public. It's a little disconcerting that this is a new act being passed to protect consumers. I know, it is, uh, considering it's 2019. And no one that's really monitoring it, no governing body that is very right, stringent. No. It's still, it's up to the manufacturer to produce um, a safe product. You know, we're putting at least a dozen uh, products on our faces or on our bodies um, every day. And it's good to know that there's acts that are starting to be put in place to make these products more safe. Or there's And there's researchers out there looking into the different ingredients that we're putting onto our bodies to help us be more informed and, and more safe. All right. Well, thanks for listening to us today. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on cosmetics and the cosmetic industry. Check us out at bioradiations.com or Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. And thanks for hanging with us. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. BioRad is a trademark of BioRad Laboratories Incorporated. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.